Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss a single episode. Good morning and welcome to Football Digest. Uh, my name's Andy Dunn, I'm the Chief Sports Writer of The Mirror, and this morning I'm joined by Matt Dunn, Football Writer from The Express, and um, football writers from the Mirror, uh, David McDonnell and Chris McKenna, football writers from the start. Um, morning, chaps. Um, we're looking back today on, on, on the international uh, break. Plenty to talk about there. And also, of course, revving up for the return of the Premier League. Um, first, though, I want to start with England. Um, Matt, myself and you were, um, were out in San Marino. We sort of expected a, a formality. And that's what we got. Um, no surprise there. But what I want to talk about is, is overall, if we can look at England, and you know, I think Gareth Southgate was a pain to point out afterwards. This wasn't about hammering San Marino 10-0. This was about wins in Warsaw, in Albania, in Budapest, and basically a superb year, calendar year, for England. Absolutely. It was... Um... I mean, yeah, it was all about that. I mean, and let's not forget the standout performance, which was that win um, in Budapest, uh, which took a lot of nerve and showed how much uh, resolve this sort of young England team have. Um, What was impressive, I mean, you say it was a formality, the match. I've been sitting there waiting for England to score 10 every time we've played one of these minnows and we never seem to do it. And, uh, you know, I think, there's something about this England team that keep going and that keep trying. And also because it, it wasn't really a first string England team, but it still looked like an England team. And I think this is what, what quietly Southgate, we initially worried if we had a decent first 11. Now we've got too many to get on a plane. And, and this is what Southgate's done over the, the last sort of five years. Um, you know, he's built a squad. We, we use more players in this World Cup qualifying campaign than we've ever used uh, to qualify before. 34 players in all. So, well, straight away, 11 of those aren't going to be going uh, and, and all feel they have to. And we didn't use Marcus Rashford, uh, Mason Greenwood, Ben White will feel he's got a chance. Um, there, there's a host of players that, you know, before we'd be scrabbling around and think, you know, oh, God, what on earth is the point taking them? We've actually got a squad that means that, you know, we don't have to go praying that metatarsals get better and and that, that players click together and whatever. You know, November is going to be a tough one. A November World Cup is going to have probably more injuries associated with it than by the end of the season because the games will have come thick and fast to that point. Uh, and I feel that even if we haven't got our strongest eleven, we're going to have a good. We're going to be amongst the leading contenders because of the strength and depth we've got. And now that's just something that's new for England. Yeah, you, you know what, David? It, um, England have now, you know, Gareth Southgate took them to a World Cup semi-final uh, in which they were very close. He took them to the final of the European Championship. Um, if you count that Italy game as a draw, um, you know, not a defeat in terms of they only lost on penalties. They haven't lost in normal time for, I think it's 20 games now, won 16 of those. I actually think, and I don't know whether you agree, that, that maybe Southgate doesn't get the credit he deserves. Yeah, I'd probably agree with you, Donny. Um, in one respect, yes. In one respect, you know, no, because look at the achievements. I mean, as you say, World Cup semi-final, you know, European Championship final, the, the proof is there for all to see. Um, and I think, as, as Matt says, you know, they will start. I think, what are they third favourites with the, with the bookies? Yeah. The moment, I think, uh, for the World Cup, you know, that's probably justified, but they are certainly going to a major tournament. We always get we always get the press and the media always get you know sort of you know uh, told off for kind of you know banging the drum too too much and and you know putting too much pressure on England teams when they go to major finals. But I think this time certainly um, you know since since the World Cup in 2018 and obviously the Euros earlier this year, you know that 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 hype is justified, that belief is justified, and I think fans you know certainly will get behind the team and believe the team have got the the, the players now and the manager and the system and the experience moreover to, to, to potentially go all the way. So I think, yeah, he, does he get the credit he deserves? Yeah, I think he, I think he does in some respect, yeah. you know, I mean, I think he's going to get a new deal, isn't he? I think that's, that's um, a sort of formality and that, that and that's deserved and, 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 and well-earned. Um, and yeah, we have a manager who is getting the best out of the players who, you know, has, has got a system that works. It can change systems, you know, um, they've gone through the campaign undefeated, 
uh, and, and, and as, as Matt said as well, and as you said, Donny, you know, there, there were some stern tests that, okay, you know, Andorra and San Marino were the kind of whipping boys, but, you know, Poland, Albania, Hungary, they, they are, they were stern tests for a young team, you know, for an inexperienced team in, in, in the main. And, um, and, and they've come through those tests with flying colours. So I, I have huge faith in this, in, in this team and a lot of excitement and expectation like the fans should do for, for, for Qatar. Yeah, Chris. I think that, I think the last time last time I saw you, I think it was at Goodison Park for Everton Spurs when, when to be kind, Harry Kane had um, you know a hard working but, but but generally ineffective game. He still looks the same Harry Kane with England, though, doesn't he? You know, and and his record now it's now forty eight goals. Um, and I guess Chris, it's just it's not a question of if; it's a question of of when he breaks Wayne Rooney's record. Yeah, I mean. I wasn't wasn't too kind of overly impressed with him just scoring yeah. goals against San Marino. Obviously, the all counts. You can't just write off a game and say because of the opposition, you can't count those goals. If you go back through, I'm sure Wayne Rooney's got a few goals against the likes of those teams. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's a matter of when now. And I think it always wasn't. I think that's maybe people will look at that and go, oh, maybe he has devalued it very slightly by scoring scoring those goals but um he's, he was always going to do it um whether it is this this uh in the nations league in june whether it is is at the world cup next uh i'm afraid to say next summer but obviously next winter yeah. which is obviously weird to say but i think yeah it's inevitable but i think for kane his focus between now and then is obviously getting his club form back because as as you said, Andy, he was he was struggling. I thought against Everton, he just didn't didn't look like the Harry Kane of old, and and I think that'll be his main main focus now is to get that club form back because Tottenham really really desperately need him to start scoring again. Yeah, I mean with with Kane, I, I do think yeah, you know, I, I don't buy into this idea that's devalued because he scored four against San Marino. I mean, you know, th- these are the players. I, I think Greaves he scored. I think. Three against in a game against Luxembourg, you you go picking holes in that. I do think the fact that he takes penalties as well, played there's a lot of penalties. I think there's fourteen penalties in that number, and I do think going forward, and and Southgate mentioned this after the game, um, prompted by a question from from Jeremy Cross about it, it's not if it's when, and then it's a question of whether or not he sets a mark that is pretty much unbeatable. I mean, you never know that, and I do think the penalty thing helps in the. And especially with VAR coming in, he's likely to get more penalty chances, you know. And he and he's a brilliant penalty taker. Um, I just I, I still think that that you know he just he just looks a different, a slightly different player in the England setup. You know, he, he's a leader now, and and he will be clearly still the captain and still the leader going into Qatar um, next November. And I just wonder, Matt, you know, will we still see? We've got loads Emil Smith Rowe. Um, sort of came through in this in, in in this international break. Conor Gallagher, of course, um, had a little cameo um, towards the end of that San Marino game. We've got loads of good young players coming through, but will it still be, you know, his his, his loyal servants, the likes of Kane, John Stones, Raheem Sterling, um, Jordan Henderson, Jordan Pickford? You know, will they still form the, you know, the, the rump of that squad that goes to Qatar next next November? I think rump's an unfortunate word, a little bit harsh, but uh, <laughs> certainly the main the main body, I would say, perhaps. Um, yeah, he does. He has his favourites and his trusted players that he relied on. I mean, people forget Maguire only just played under South. Yeah, he was nowhere. He played just before Euro 2016. Um, you know, he was, it may he was basically a Southgate player. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and Kane had played a little bit beforehand, but but very few of these players played much football before Southgate came and took over. Um, and the other night, I think against Albania, it was our suddenly you know, we kept talking about a youngest team. It was our most experienced team for eight years, and they all had forty seven of the players had forty caps, and yeah. they're the players that Southgate has used week in week out. You know, whenever he whenever the big games have come along, uh, and they'll be the main. Backbone, I would say, we're still not getting down to that run, but backbone of that team. Um, but what I would say class. is, there are some young players like Phil Foden. I think it's going to become a lot harder for him not to be part of the first 11, um, to find a slot somewhere, possibly on the side. Um, and uh, Saka, whenever he yeah. plays for England, seems a far better player. You know, if you know, Kane has the 
you know, he's, it's like you talk about a difference between club form. Saka is kind of good for Arsenal, but brilliant for England. He just seems to, to be a natural in there. So it's going to be hard for him not to. And I, I, I fear, for instance, our World Cup semi-final goal scorer, Kieran Trippier, may miss out on the plane this time because finally um, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Luke Shaw, Chilwell and uh, Rhys James are all better, you know, further ahead of him. Mm-hmm. So what's gradually doing, what's gradually happening is it's gradually changing. A few old heads are dropping out, a few young It's not a revolution. I don't know if Smith Rowe is going to be quite there for November. Um I think Bellingham will be because he he does offer something exciting, even though he's so young. Um, but but uh, I think it's going to be harder. The only player I can think of who who might well get on the plane who hasn't played in the qualifiers uh, is Ben White, who I think with a season at you know trying to shore up Arsenal <laughs> under his belt will have be, be on a fast track to becoming a very good defender. And I think what we've established is that we're going to go to Qatar with a back three. Um, yeah. And that needs a certain amount of mobility if you're going to be attacking enough. And I think perhaps Ben White will will find a place there. But but no, it's going to be a lot of the same faces. Jordan Henderson, big question mark over him, I think. So one or two will drop out. But yeah, Kane will be there. Sterling will go. Whether he'll be first 11, I'm not sure, um, unless his, his city form picks up or he finds you know more joy elsewhere. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an evolving thing, but... But yeah, it, it won't be an unrecognisable team from, no. from what we've been seeing at the minute. No, and I think, I mean, someone like Henderson, for example, you know, I, I think his performance against um, Albania at Wembley last Friday was was sensational. I mean, and just mm. it reminded you what a what a great influence and a great player he is. I mean, he turns, I think, thirty two in the summer, um, off the top of my head. Uh, you know, so I still think the likes of him will be, you know, will form that backbone. Is there anyone, David, any of the younger players you think? can make a run at it, who are maybe not even in the squad at the moment between now and November? Because Southgate will have quite a few games to check his options out. Yeah, I think as Matt, Matt mentioned there too, mm. the name, um, Mason Greenwood for me, obviously I, I cover Manchester United and, and there was yes. been a tacit, tacit agreement between um, Olegan Solskjaer and, and Gareth Southgate that they wouldn't pick Mason Greenwood. Um, you know, they'd, they'd allow him to develop. Uh, of course, he had that false start when, when him and Foden were, were, were sent back from, from Iceland. But I think, and he struggled this season. I think Everton and Manchester United, although Greenwood had a decent start, um, but in recent weeks United have struggled. Um, but I think he is a player that I think could certainly force his way into the squad. You know, the most natural finisher at Manchester United, one of the most natural, probably probably one of the best English English finishers um, currently around. Um, versatile, can play. You know, two footed. Um, you know, got that turn of pace. Uh, he could certainly force his way into this into the squad. And I think obviously we mentioned Matt mentioned uh, Emil Smith Rowe. I think there's an interesting potential question mark over Jack Grealish, um, who's not really hit the ground running at Manchester City. But obviously his his sort of status, you would think, you know, um, would dictate that he would get the nod ahead of someone like Emil Smith-Rowe. But if Smith-Rowe keeps scoring and and keeps, you know, um, knocking on the door, as it were, and, and, and giving Southgate an option but to pick him, I think that could pose an interesting dilemma. Um, and he's going to have a few positions where... Um, you know, he's going to have some big, tough decisions to make. So I think Greenwood could certainly make a run into the squad. And I think, you know, I'd certainly like to see him given given an opportunity um, in, in, in an England shirt. Uh, and again, Smith-Rowe is, is one of those players who, as Matt said, it, it may come a bit too early for him. But, you know, it's the old adage, if, 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 you're, if you're good enough, you're old enough. And if, if your form dictates that you are, you know, deserve a place and warrant a place, then I think, you know, Southgate would certainly not, 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 not consider his inexperience as a, as a factor when when, when picking him. Mm-hmm. It, it's um, if you want England have got that many options as you've just outlined. I think that you know we take qualifying almost as a as a given now, almost as a format. It shouldn't be because you, you know we look around around um, Europe and, and there are nations that you'd expected to qualify who a either haven't qualified or b haven't to go through the playoffs, but. You know, I think if you wanted a bit of jeopardy and a bit of excitement, we don't have to look any further than Scotland and Wales, Chris. And you know, at the moment, it seems to me, you know, obviously I've been I've been with England, but looking at the sort of the atmosphere, um, the pictures of, and the the vibrancy around those two camps, it, it looks like both Scotland and Wales are going into the playoffs on a real high. Yeah, I mean, they both had brilliant results on the on the last last day um, to to secure their places. I mean, I know Denmark had. Had obviously sewn up their place, yeah. so they probably had their foot off the gas. But to still go and get a victory over a team who 
who ran England all the way in, in the Euros and obviously were inspired by the whole Ericsson thing last summer. Um, there's no mean feat. And getting a draw with, with a Belgium side that obviously are, are still underachieving to an extent, but I still have one of the most exciting squads uh, out there. So, yeah, it, it, the atmosphere is great. Uh, everything seems to be going forward for them. They're now in contention regularly for major tournaments. If they're not there, they're always mm-hmm. the, the pushing every year, which which wasn't the case kind of maybe six, eight years ago, certainly for certainly for Scotland. Um, and it, it's good for, for the kind of home nations, isn't it? I'm just... Yeah. I'm just disappointed that uh, the Republic of Ireland are still yeah. still uh, miles off it, but we're we're improving ever so slightly. But you do look at countries like Scotland and Wales, and we're, we're envious because, yeah, okay, they're not going to go out to the World Cup in November if they get there and win it, but they're still going to have that kind of the the magic of being there, and that will inspire players coming through the ranks once they see that as well, because it's given those players that are maybe 16, 17, 18, they can look up and go, right, I'll stay with Scotland and, and Wales. I maybe won't be tempted if, if if they are one of those players that can go over to England or that. I'll stay here because this is my country. I want to play for them. And there's now a chance of playing at major tournaments for them. So I think it'll help inspire further generations of players from, their, from those countries. I mean, Matt, um, just a word on the job Steve Clark's doing. I mean, exceptional at the moment. Oh, absolutely. You know, he's uh, making the best of, of the, you know, some excellent resources that he's got, um, but also some holes in his squad. He seems to be papering over to create a, a sound unit. Uh, I think um, if you've got an exceptional player like Wales have had in Bale, then I, I think that explains why, the, why they've done so well for Scotland. Mm. It's been a lot harder because, you know, they're relying on some some good performers um, all to pull their weight, uh, and that seems to happen more often than not. Uh, and it's yeah, whether it's organisation spirit or whatever it is, he's got to kind of made it click. And they're going to go into the playoffs same as well. Thinking, I mean, it, a lot depends on next Friday's draw. Um, yeah, but with a homes crowd for both Wales and Scotland, there's no one in the, that semi final pot that that they should fear. And then it's a case of avoiding, you know, Portugal, Italy. Um, but I mean. Russia and Sweden are both beatable over two legs, they will yes. feel. So there is a pathway there that, for them to aim for. Um, uh, all <laughs> woe betide it being uh, Wales and Scotland again and we get Joe Jordan's handball coming back into the picture <laughs> again. But, uh, but yeah, no, it'll be a big draw for them on Friday. But, but there is definitely, there are clear paths to finals for both of them. Yeah, I think the home advantage first off will be huge. In, you know, I mean, the atmosphere, we've all been... Um, to Hamden, for example, I remember last time I was there was for that um, England game, the the two two, and it was just you know sensational. So that could be a big plus. I tell you what, two of Scotland's you know uh, key players, obviously Andy Robertson and Kieran Tierney, um, and that brings me neatly on to the return of the Premier League and Liverpool versus Arsenal um, on, on Saturday. That's the, the 5.30 game. I'll be there for that one. Um, th- listen, I think if you just said, I don't know, a couple of months back, you know, that this could be a, a keenly fought game and that the, the Arsenal would be pretty much within striking distance of Liverpool, you would have been laughed out of court. But it's Arsenal going into this game with a bit of momentum. And Chris, Liverpool needing to bounce back from... A slightly controversial defeat down at West Ham. It's a tasty fixture, Chris, isn't it? Yeah, it's a it's a lot more kind of exciting than than would have expected it to be. And Liverpool need to to rediscover something because it wasn't just the defeat um, against uh, West Ham. It was the week four draw at home to Brighton, which yeah, was sure. a disappointing result for them, and um, especially considering they were in control of that game. So they they need to to get back to winning ways because. The form of Chelsea means that if you kind of give them any more kind of breathing space, they're not saying it'll be uncatchable or anything like that, but Chelsea will have that kind of breathing space. They've shown they've, they've looked looked apart so far this season. Um, so you don't want to give them any more ground. So there's a lot of pressure, I think, coming on Liverpool in this game. And it's not an easy game. Arsenal are going to go there in confidence. Uh, Teta 
I mean, I remember thinking back at the start of the season, I think they had a run of games against like Burnley, Norwich and somebody else. And I'm thinking if he doesn't win all three of those, he could be getting the sack. Um, and he's managed to, to remarkably turn it around. He's got, obviously, Smith Rose for me. He's been a big help. And he's got Ben White playing well at the back. And it just seems to be going in the right direction at the minute for them. But this is a big test for them. Um, yes. they, they don't often do well at Anfield. It hasn't been a happy hunting ground for them um, for a long time. Um, they've had some heavy defeats there, four nils, five ones. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be a tough one for them, man. It's going to be a real test of where Arsenal are at. So yeah, looking yeah. forward. To it. it should be a cracker. Matt, if I just come back to you on Arsenal, I'm just intrigued. You know, Chris was mentioned there when you know we all thought maybe Arteta was. I wouldn't say on the brink, but, you know, most Premier League managers are on the brink nowadays, aren't they? You know, it's every other day they seem to be getting the sack. But but in terms of Arteta, what has Arteta done to turn it around at Arsenal? Has he turned it around? Well, OK, has he turned I it mean, around? I mean, this is the question. This is the question I think we'll find out the answer to, and you'll be there to watch it firsthand. Because, as Chris said, they beat Burnley, and they beat Norwich, and, you know, until recently, everyone was doing that. Um, they they beat a Spurs team that didn't even turn up. Um, then they had a couple of trickier games against what you'd say were lesser quality teams, but with a bit of backbone to them, Brighton and Palace, and they couldn't beat either of them. Uh, and then they beat Villa again, who were struggling. And then Leicester, who've been hit and miss all season, they beat them, which was arguably a good result. And then Watford. I mean, what's in there to say that Arsenal are in top four contention? This is the match that we will find out whether this process that we're having to buy into, the word process at our hybrid, oh, uh, the Emirates has been going on and on and on. You know, yeah. Is it real thing? It real? Or, you know, it, or or are we just, has it just been a, a very convenient run of fixtures for Arteta? I think, I think, I think, it's, I think important it's important that Arsenal push, push Liverpool, Liverpool close, close, even if you can't beat them. them. Um, and uh, we... we Get a get real glimpse of, of where our Arsenal actually are, or whether this has become just a little bit of a myth over the last few weeks. Yeah, it will it'll, it'll be fascinating, fascinating to see. Um, Dave, talking about managers on the brink, one manager who is permanently on the brink, lives his life on the brink, wakes up on the brink, goes to bed on the brink, is is, is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And again, they, they've got a, a trip to Watford. And, and again, I guess we say this before most Man United games now, it, it's, a, it's a game that you dare not lose, I guess. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you're, you're right, uh, Donny. He, he lives his, you know, he's been on the brink since I think he took the job almost three years yeah. ago. Um, you know, he's, he's permanently on the brink. Listen, they've, they, Watford. Uh, you know, you probably couldn't wish for, for for better opponents to face. You know, after after the international break than, than Watford. Um, they've won once in four under under Ranieri. Um, but you're right, Solskjaer. He's given the players a week off. I mean, you know, if United weren't going to sack him after the the humiliating defeats to Liverpool and Manchester City, then they're never going to sack him. And I think that's potentially down to a lack of credible and available candidates. Um, also because there's no desire to sack him as well. I think that they, are, they are so desperate for it to succeed, but it's plainly not working. You know, no, I mean, I mean they were schooled by Liverpool. I think, as many of us have said, I think the, the Manchester City defeat was even more embarrassing and chastening because it, it was as if City were just toying with United. You know, they, they, they couldn't get near them, they couldn't lay a glove on them, they could have been out there till, you know, till nightfall and, and, and not scored a goal. So they have to, they've got, I think, 11 games now in Manchester United between now and the end of the year, two in the Champions League, nine in the league. This time last year, if memory serves me correct, they went on a, a run of, I think, seven wins out of nine in the Premier League, which, which, which took them up to second in the table. So he needs history to repeat itself, Solskjaer. Um, but I'm afraid I can't. I can't see it happening. Okay, they've got Watford. They might win there. But as Matt just said, with Arsenal, you get these opponents. You know, United won three uh, 0 at Spurs, but as you know, Spurs didn't turn up then either, and, and and haven't turned up for much of the season, of course. Um, so I discount that result. Um, but four points out of eighteen, which is what United are on at the moment, is is relegation form. Um, and it, it's it's shockingly bad. But I think he's benefited as well from the fact that. The teams around them, like Manchester City, like Liverpool, like Chelsea, uh, 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 have all suffered these uncharacteristic blips. In recent seasons, we've seen them go on these remorseless winning runs, particularly Liverpool and Manchester City. But as, as Chris just said, you know, Liverpool have drawn with, with Brighton, with Burnley, you know, uh, Brentford, um, you know, lost to West Ham. City have lost at home to Palace. 
uh, you know, Chelsea have, 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 have stumbled, um, drawing at home to Burnley. So that, in a sense, has actually helps Oscar in that the, the Manchester United, despite losing four out of ten Premier League games, uh, and are only nine points off the top. They're, 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 they're not cut adrift. You know, they're still in the hunt for the top four. So I think that's in his favour. But he, he has to go on some sort of run now because I don't think the fans will tolerate it much longer. Um, you know, there's a, there's a will for him to succeed a boardroom level, and and there is within the fan base because he's such a such a legend at Manchester United. You know, we we all know his iconic goal in the in the to, to steal the treble in '99, and and the, there's no desire for the fan or among the fans to turn on Solskjaer. But there were boos at half time and full time yeah. Liverpool defeat. There were boos against City, and really, you know, you cannot allow that situation to carry on if if, if there's going to be no resolution in sight. So yeah, massive game for them uh, on Saturday. I expect them to win. But then they've got Chelsea and Arsenal after that. We've got Villarreal uh, on Tuesday in the Champions League. And again, that's not done right because um, your defeat there could, you know, it'll, it'll see the whole qualification uh, for the last 16 go down to the last group game. But after Villarreal, they've got Chelsea and Arsenal. And, you know, they're looking at two more defeats there. So, yeah, a huge, a huge sort of period in Manchester United season uh, and Solskjaer's sort of tenure, if you like, and, and probably a defining one at that. Yeah, I mean, but you're right that we keep saying, you know, we keep saying it's a huge period. Um, we thought the games at home to Liverpool and Manchester City would be huge for him, and 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 they were embarrassed in both. And then yeah. and then they, you know, you you have an international break, and you think, well, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen now. You, you know, I mean, the, I, I'm I'm totally with you. You know, the nature of that defeat to City, you know, a home game, a home derby in front of seventy thousand fans, and you basically wave the white flag from the very first whistle. You know, yeah. you know, basically seven defensive players, three centre halves against a team that hasn't got a centre forward, and it just, you know, and they were happy for sit out possession even after they opened the scoring, and it was yeah. an embarrassing defeat. But, 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 Chris, you know, one of the arguments I, I, goes that well, who's out there to who, who would be out there to step in? I mean, clearly Conte was out there, but is now taken. Who's out there? I mean, we're hearing noise about Zidane this week. Would that be an option, or or do you think that United? The financial results came in, you know, yesterday, I think. They seem okay. The Glazers will get their usual dividend in January, nine million quid or whatever. Are they bothered about replacing Solskjaer? I think that's the problem, the who's out there. But I think they're going to kind of, I think, well, at the minute, they're hoping to, I suppose, bundle on until the end of the season and make a decision then and see who's out there then. Maybe Pochettino will be available. Maybe they, they could go for Rodgers. Zidane, Zidane's a funny one. Like his record, if you look at his honours list, is remarkable for a manager. But I don't know. We don't really. This sounds so bizarre, but considering what he's won, you don't really know how good of a manager he is because he had that ridiculously good team at Real Madrid. But as we've seen, Manchester United have a ridiculously good squad, and they can't get it going. Yeah. So he must there must be a good manager there, or. There's something about Zidane that maybe his even the aura around him that players just up the level because it's Zidane. I want to play well for him. I want to impress him. Maybe that would work. I, I think they probably they need it, and what they'll want is more of a, a kind of a Pochettino or Brendan Rodgers, somebody who's going to come in and work for four, five, six years with a, a group of players, develop young players. I think that's what they'll look for. I don't think that they obviously David would have a far better idea than me. He covers the club regularly. That they would go for a Zidane kind of a kind of character, um, who is just a a Galactico. He was a Galactico player. He's now kind of a Galactico manager, isn't he? He's just going to come in there, try and win trophies for two or three years, and he'd probably leave. Whereas I think they'll want somebody that's going to stay for a, a bit longer than that. So I think they'll try and bundle on and and see where and hope that they scrape into the top four, and then the Glazers won't really be too yeah. bothered because they'll get the Champions League money for next season. But I think the problem longer term comes if if it bundles on this season and the whole season's just a disaster. They're gonna if they're gonna go looking for players next summer, even if they have a new manager. Some players might go, well, yeah, that club's a circus. Why would I go there? Um, so they, they've got to be careful in that sense. They can't let the whole season just become become a bit of a joke, really. Um, so it's it's a it's a tough decision. I think they. I just. I think it's a bit unfair on Solskjaer that they're leaving him in there because he's a, a, a club legend. Um, I, I don't cover them regularly, but he seems a fairly decent guy to deal with. And you, you don't want him to kind of get embarrassed and, and get abused. And obviously social media is horrible anyway, but some of the stuff on there is disgraceful. Even when 
Manchester United are tweeting about uh, positive stuff that they're doing in the community or talking about former players and, and, and recovering from illnesses and all the replies on their ear about abusing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And I don't think that's right either. So I think they're, they're going to have a decision. And as David said, I mean, Chelsea and Arsenal, OK, losing to Liverpool and City was embarrassing. It was awful. But if they lose to somebody like somebody Arsenal, who are a rival of theirs now for the top four, maybe, then I think there's going to be questions asked again and they're in a, in a tough position. Yeah, I mean, as Chris just said there, it's a very difficult position for United because as we all accept that the post-Ferguson era, and that there was no succession plan in place at all. It's been absolute shambles. They went for the kind of succession, kind of continuity with Moyes, ditched him after 10 months. They went for, as Chris said, the Galactico coaches, if you like, in Van Harlem, Mourinho. That didn't work. They went back to the continuity with Solskjaer. That's not working. Mm. They've tried every option. You know, and I think that's the they're almost paralyzed at the moment by fear of getting it wrong again. So they're just sitting tight and hoping, you know, rather than through any firm sense of conviction, hoping that things will eventually iron themselves out in the soft guard. But you, you can't see it happening. And um, I think I think Chris is right. I think, you know, they are they don't know what to do. They simply are almost scared of making a decision because there aren't any uh, available candidates, you know, who I mean it, look. Pochettino, I'm sure if they threw enough money at him, they could they, they could get him out of PSG. Probably not till the summer. Uh, Rogers as well, obviously, is is um is is a preferred choice. I think the Liverpool thing wouldn't really be an issue um, uh, for, for Manchester United, but they've gone down so many different routes. They're back to square one effectively, and they're no further forward. All right, they might have won a couple of trophies, two or three trophies, um, you know, um, since since Ferguson <laughs> left, but they've not contended for the Premier League. They've not contended for the Champions League. They've won a League Cup, Europa League, you know, uh, FA Cup. But that's the level they're at now. Um, and I think there's a real fear that they just don't know where to turn next. Yeah. And it, it, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm listening to all of that, Dave. And, and, and you know what? It's making me think. You said they've tried so many things. And, and, and Donnie, Matt, is that, is that reflection of the fact that there's actually no overall sort of football man in charge? We come back to the old, the old director of football argument at Manchester United, which, you know, um, we've all had the discussion with um, with Woodward about, you know, I think we were all briefed on what, what what direction they were going in. Yet still, you know, there's no one there overall who you think is in charge of football operations, who's directing the football side of things in the right way. We know there's loads of commercial guys and social media guys doing a fine job because, because those people on Wall Street get told every three months what a great job and how many hits they're getting and, and, and how they're surviving financially during a pandemic. And then they'll say, like Woodward said yesterday, well, don't forget our main focus is still to be successful on the pitch. Well, where's the experts in that? Where are the experts who recruited Cristiano Ronaldo? Who thought that was a good idea? I mean, that's another subject. You know, it looks on the face of it. It was because he's scored match-winning goals. But then the reality is, is, is they're getting less points per game with Ronaldo in than they did without him. So who thought that was a good idea? Who, who, who thought it was a good idea not to sign a high-quality defensive midfielder in the summer? You know, is, is that what Manchester United's issue is? I'm not saying it's a cure-all for everything, a director of football, but surely who, who, who is making these decisions on managers and players? Has Matt just muted himself? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Dave, you answer that question for me, yeah. mate. Well, they've, they've got John Murta in there now, obviously, as um, you know, uh, director of football. Darren Fletcher you know, is in there as well, in, in that, that kind of role as well. So they have made moves to, to address those situations and... and, and give people with greater football knowledge and, and expertise than Ed Woodward more clout and, and give them overall decision-making uh, uh, in, in, in terms of, you know, uh, those decisions that have to be made. So, yeah, I think that that, that is a question that's been leveled at, at, at Woodward over recent years. You know, I mean, their transfer policy, you know, post-Ferguson was absolutely shambolic. You know, it was a sort of scattergun approach to, to transfers. I think in fairness to Manchester United, in recent seasons, certainly last summer and the summer before, there was a more strategic approach to it. I think, you know, you saw that with the signing of Harry Maguire. Okay, he's having a terrible time at the moment, but who isn't at Manchester United? Um, but certainly, you know, they brought in Jaden Sancho. <laughs> Again, I'm kind of arguing against my own point here. But what I'm saying is there they were, they were signings that, that, that everyone viewed as a position that needed to be strengthened, the right side of midfield, central defence. Varane come in, obviously a proven uh, World Cup winner, proven you know, serial Champions League winner with, with Real Madrid. Obviously, he's been injured. He's had a bit of a stop-start start to his Manchester United career. But the point I'm making is that there has been a more 
coherent approach to, to, to transfer uh, signings in, in recent seasons. So, you know, it, it comes down to the manager, I think. It comes down to, um, you know, last season Manchester United finished second. Okay, that, but that was a false position, if you like, because so many teams dropped off, Liverpool in particular, um, just just dropped off. Chelsea, you know, um, had a change of manager, obviously, halfway through, and, uh, and, and Tuchel obviously came and took them to the Champions League final and won that. But, I mean, in the league... Uh, it, it was a really sort of idiosyncratic league, wasn't it? You know, apart from Manchester City, that the other big teams kind of didn't turn up. So yeah. I think it comes back to the manager. Yes, I think they're, they're, I mean, look, United did brilliantly for you know, two and a half decades under Ferguson without a director of football. But I think the modern game has moved on and, and I think you need that someone in that role now. So, you know, I'd have, I've, I've tried to address that with John Murta and, and Darren Fletcher. And, and that was only, you know, within the last sort of six six months or so. Yeah. So that will take time to to come to fruition, you know, they have to bed down in terms of their authority and, and, and get to know the role and, 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 and have experience of that. But I just think it comes back to the manager and are the players playing for the manager? I'm not so sure they are. I think there's a lot of doubt in that dressing room over Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I don't think there's any ill will towards him from the players like there was with Mourinho. Uh, there's no toxicity. It hasn't got to that stage yet. But I just, I think that there's a huge element of doubt and belief in his ability to steer them out of this crisis. Um, <laughs> And I think, you know, that's the problem Manchester United have got. And we come back to that. Who do you get? Um, it, it's a really, really difficult one. So I think, as Chris said, and as you yourself said, Danny, I think there's a, a desire to kind of just, until it gets to the point of no return, they're quite happy to, to, to let things go. You know, and, and that's where Manchester United are at the moment, aren't they? They're, they're, they're six in the table. Sorry, I'll just finish up. They're six in the table. I know. But, but that's really where they're at. That's, that's yeah. where they deserve to be. They are, they're not, they're not title contenders anymore. They are top four contenders, and really, if they can sneak into the top four, the Glazers and Woodward and the hierarchy will see that as a good season. Yeah, you know, I, I talk about Derek. Come in, now I'm bad, but uh, as yeah, I was well, saying to myself uh, with the mute button on a few moments. Ago, I thought, I thought, I thought it was the most illuminating you've been for a long time. Yeah, absolutely, I tell you what. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the the echoes coming off my walls was like a good point there, uh, Matt. So, uh, so I'll share it with the room. Um, I think. It's underestimated too much uh, how important Tixiki uh, Bajirisan was in the whole Manchester City thing. He was like John the Baptist ahead of Pep arriving. They announced that, that Pep was five years in the appointment before he arrived, and that was the groundwork that was being put down, which doesn't exist at United. I mean, I'll ask Dave because he's closer to it, but this is a sense I get from talking to people. Which academy do you want your kids to go to in Manchester? Do you go to City or do you go to United now? Well, it's telling that a lot of the ex-Manchester United players... A lot of old United players are sending their kids to City. If that doesn't say where the club's going wrong, I'm not quite sure what does because the whole of United's success was built on the kids they bought through their academy initially. And if that's not strong, strong, if you're not getting that right, then the top players don't want to come because they want to play with a, you know, a, a, a club where it has belief and, and the rest of it. And I think they've let that slide. They've, they've rested on the laurels of the class of 92 and, and uh, pretty much still got the same sort of ideas. I mean, obviously they've got slightly better facilities, but I don't think they've really pushed it on as far as City certainly have, because City identified that was a way that they could catch up with United and eventually overtake them. Uh, and they've got that horrible. And again, it's because there's nobody at director of football level within the Glazer um, hierarchy to say, that's what we need to get right first. We keep talking about the managers and the players in the dressing room. It's never going to get right until the whole club is right. And that not being funny is where Spurs did so well under Pochettino. They built the infrastructure below it. And then they went, got right. And now the problem is that belief has gone again, which is why they are struggling under different managers. But you've got to, uh, but, but their hope for a, you know, a revival comes from that academy they've built at Spurs. Um, and until Manchester United get that right with a proper director of football, put the right passages in place. And until United players, former United players, can be persuaded to invest their own flesh and blood in the club's future, then something's seriously wrong there, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, just on that, you can't say that I don't think the United's academy isn't delivering. I mean, Mason Greenwood and Marcus Rashford are two products of it and are two of the best forwards in England. So I think there is a... I don't yeah. think the academy is a total shambles. I it's not a total it's, shambles, but it's yeah. not up with... I mean, you've got Foden, you've got uh, people like Sancho that they uh, develop. And Sancho actually... 
possibly isn't quite what was required. And this is a big season for him for club and country. Um, but I still think that, that that's an indictment, though. Yeah. It, when United players are sending their kids to City, then there's something that is perceived that's not quite right about, about that process. And yes, a few talented individuals can make the difference. But again, Greenwood's still got to prove himself at the top level and men- mentally. And that's the side of things that that seems to be going awry at uh, United. It's the mental side of things, whereas someone like Foden is rock solid, isn't he? So, yeah, you know, I, I just wonder if, if that's something that they've put enough attention into. I, I, I do think... I do, I do think rather than just the academy, the actual whole direction of the football operation I was really referring to in the sense of is there any structure? And I think you're right when you mentioned Bagheristan and Soriano, for example, at City, in that they will turn around and basically get the players who, who are needed for the team, who the coach tells them they need. You know, so when they needed a centre-back, they went out and got Diaz. They haven't been told. You know, they will ask Pep. Clearly, they will bow to Pep's um, will and his knowledge of football to do it. You didn't get the sense that, you know, the Solskjaer, for example, went and said, guess what? I need a midfielder like Donny van der Beek. He clearly didn't because he never plays him. You don't get the mm. sense that he said, listen, I need Cristiano Ronaldo back. You know, and, and, and so in other words, you don't get the sense that there's joined up thinking between the coach and those executives in the boardroom. You get that feeling, certainly at Liverpool with, you know, I mean, obviously now going um, with Klopp and, and Edwards, you, you know, you got that feeling at Chelsea to a certain extent. And you mentioned the, the, the academy and the players. You know, Chelsea is another one of those that are producing player after player, mainly not for their own club, you know, for clubs like, you know, to go out on, on loan. But Chelsea at the moment, though, I think you look at it, and, and many, many people have said this, it, it, is that it comes back to the manager in the sense that you've got the three powerhouse teams, Chelsea, City and Liverpool, Tuchel, Guardiola and Klopp, you know, versus Solskjaer. And there's clearly a disparity there. And Matt, if I can just come back to you on Tuchel, you know, I mean, it feels like he's been he's been here for you know forever, doesn't it? You, you know, he, he just he just seems to he hit the ground running when he came, and he hasn't stopped. And Chelsea, I don't know, would you have Chelsea down now as the favourites to win the Premier League? Um, I had them down at the start of the season. I've been impressed by the way City have when they've been got it right, have got it right. Um, so I think they're still contenders because he does seem to have that ability to um, nurse his players back from, from bad results. And there are going to be bad results this season. It's, we've already seen that. Um, he has been a remarkable breath of fresh air into to the club because for him to have done what he did in the second half of the season from, I mean, he's the impetus to kickstart that United want. You know, it's exactly where they are. They're cruising under a former player, Chelsea were, um, and a club legend. Uh, but actually, that isn't good enough for Chelsea. There wasn't good enough for Chelsea. It isn't good enough for United. And you need a character like Tuchel, who doesn't mind not being popular, um, is willing to, you know, shake things up a little bit, has a wholehearted belief in what he's doing. And for the moment, at least, it all seems to be working. And, you know, he had the talent there. Uh, to do what he wanted to do, uh, and they they just keep sort of steamrolling on. And yeah, they drop the occasional point. Uh, and to be fair, he's been fairly honest in his appraisal of of when they've dropped points. Um, so you know, and it's not always because oh, it's a disaster. We've gone off the rails. Sometimes the ball just won't go in the back of the net, like like happened the other <laughs> week. Like- uh, and he's uh, you know, as long as he's players believe that he's going to be consistent about that. They'll keep playing for him. Uh, and yeah, I, I think they'll, they'll certainly, I think it's going to be a really interesting three, three way tussle at the top there. Uh, but Chelsea are definitely going to be part of it. Chris, um, Matt mentioned it's going to be a tussle, you know, a great three-way tussle. City obviously will be will be there in that three-way tussle, but they've got Everton at home on Sunday. You've seen quite a bit of Everton, as I have. Um, can they get anything at the Etihad on Sunday? I'm struggling to see it. Um, mm. Against Tottenham, they did kind of have a bit more organisation back. Um, they had moments in the game, but... I think they're they're badly missing Decore. I think they're very badly missing Calvert Lewin. Um and yeah, the the size of those guys as well defensively helped them out as much as going forward. Um and I don't think they've won away since 
Is it Brighton at the in back in August? Um, they haven't won a game since beating Norwich um, in September. Uh, it's 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 a tough game for them. I think it's one of those that's kind of it's not going to put any pressure on Benitez if they lose it unless they get hammered. But yeah, I'd I'd really really struggle. I think the bigger games for them are are going to come Brentford. Then they go into the Merseyside derby. Then they've got Arsenal. Um, they're the kind of not saying winnable games, but bigger games for Benitez and his kind of what how that's going to go for him. I think this one's a bit of a free pass, but as long as they don't get hammered, I but I just I just can't see them getting a result at City. Not the way City have been playing as well. Yeah, I, I guess Dave Everton's hope would be if if they're looking for a, a sort of a glimmer of hope, they'd look at the City getting beat at home to Palace, wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean that would be the 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 blueprint. I mean, you know, there, there is for all their for all their wonderful play, and you know, they, they bounce back spectacularly at Manchester United. Um, you know, you can you can get at Manchester City if you if you soak up the pressure, you know, let them have the ball and then hit them on the break as as Palace did superbly. Um, you know, so I think Benitez, you know, will be looking at that that game um, and look and explain to his players, look, this is where you can hurt Manchester City. This is where you can you can get at them. You know, if if you play in the right way, but you've you've got to execute the game game plan perfectly, as mm-hmm. as, as side did, um, and, and City've got to have an off day as well for that to happen. And as Chris said, you know, Decore is is a is a huge huge player for for, for, yeah. for Everton. I think obviously he's a major miss. I mean, I saw I haven't seen a lot of Everton, but saw them at, at, at Old Trafford against United, and and he was incredible then. And really, Everton should have won that game. Um, you know, um, yeah. so he's a huge miss. Cavalu is a huge miss, but you know, you know, City, as I say, are vulnerable. You you you, you can beat them, but I, I would I would expect um, City City to, to win that game. Um, you know, all things considered, one of the games Matt that City have lost this season was was at Spurs. It seems like an age ago when Spurs were beating Manchester City. You know, um, changed the manager since and the change of form since. Spurs have got uh, Leeds at home. Um, Again, just referring back, myself and Chris watched um, Spurs and Everton again. Not even manager shots on targets. Now you'll tell me, I'm sure, but it's what is it, three hundred and something minutes without the shots on target? Yeah, for the entire team. It's, it's got to be a job to work it out exactly. But uh, it's a long time. The one thing that's different this time is Harry Kane can walk back into the training ground uh, today or tomorrow uh, and say, "Look, boss, it's clearly not me." You know, he's scoring goals. Uh, and Spurs is quite simple. I've got to find a way of getting the ball to him in goal-scoring positions. Um, you know, that was the problem under Nuno. Uh, they weren't doing that enough. And and Conte's not managed to unlock that in his first two games. And, and you know, they desperately just need to find a way of scoring goals. It's, it's that simple. Uh, and that never used to be the problem. Um, then he's got to find a way of stopping goals going in the other end, and then he's got to find a way of trying to keep hold of possession a bit more. I mean, it's a massive thing, but that that lack of shots that that tells you everything. I mean, especially with a manager who, when Levy promised in the summer that they were going to return to the DNA of the club, and it's to there is to do, and they he's got a mandate to entertain. He can't Conte can't can't come in and just you know shore up shop and try and nick one. You know the, the the club is it's in real trouble unless it finds some way of getting the ball into the opponent's goal or near the opponent's goal, uh, and it's just not happening. And you know, and you don't understand why when you look at those players. But uh, but yeah, but that's why Conte gets the big bucks and and not not myself because I, I can't understand why players that that were doing it regularly under Pochettino, basically, can't seem to do that because there's some good players in that team still. Yeah, yeah. You've got Moura, who's who's dangerous. You've got Son. You've got uh, Hoiberg, who's a show you may be missing on Sunday, but he's a strong uh, strong midfielder. Uh, you know, you've got the kernel of a good side there. And when you've got Kane, who can bang in goals for England, and let's not underestimate, I mean, the fourth goal he scored against, okay, it was San Marino, but that's a player who's, bang on top of his game as he walks through the defence and just ducks in the corner. That's not a man who's struggling to to take chances. That's a man who's struggling to get them. Uh, and, you know, he's such a crucial player for them that he's got to make him tick. It's as simple as that. Let me, I mean, I mean, yes. And, and I, that was quick fee for that last goal of his, but let's be honest, mate. I mean, the cones oh. are 
Tottenham Hotspur's training ground have given him more problems than, than San Marino defenders, I would have thought. Um, and also, I, I do slightly disagree with you in the sense that, you know, I mean, Kane, I, I, for example, last time I saw him at Goodison, you know, was it, it's okay saying let's get it to him in scoring positions, but he, him himself, you know, I, I don't, I still don't understand, you know, how deep he drops, how how he drops into wide positions, you know, and he's he's spraying the ball around, uh, and and he seems to enjoy that part of the game, and when really you want him like he was against San Marino, mm. just basically in there, in there sniffing out chances, which he's not doing at the moment, and I, I, I still. When Harry Kane said, um, and he doesn't, you know, he's very guarded in what he says. When he said when he was on international duty in his first extended interview, basically since, you know, he wanted out of there in the summer. When he said the new manager coming in has given everyone a lift, he's referring to Conte and whatever. You know, you think to yourself, well, why did you need a lift? You know, you're playing for you're playing for Spurs, you're playing for the shirt, you're playing for the badge. You're playing for a great club. Never mind. OK, you might not have agreed with, with Nuno's tactics. But even so, I think that's a bit of an indictment of how they, I wouldn't say down tools under Nuno, but it looked like it on, on, on occasions. And do you think, for example, I mean, I mean, Dave, do you think that the Kane is still, is it still a repercussion of what happened in the summit? Will he still be thinking, I could have been at City? Will he still, will he be thinking, I could yet get to City? I don't know. It, to me, he looks like, for this club at the moment, a different player. Yeah, I think I think it's only natural that he would think that way because it, it, he tried so hard and was so brazen in trying to get himself extricated from Spurs. You know, I mean, you know, the briefings that were going on, the the, the the leverage he tried, you know, to, to sort of you know on, on Spurs to get himself out of uh, out of there. So I think it's only natural that he will feel psychologically his head will probably still be, you know, why am I still here? You know, yeah. I'm still here. I'm still not going to win trophies. Uh, you know. I'm in the prime of my career. What is he, 28, 29 now? Um, and, and here I am, sort of, you know, n- not where I want to be. So I think that, that that's only natural. And I think psychologically that, that will be playing on his mind. But as Matt said, you know, he's, he hasn't lost that goal-scoring instinct. He hasn't lost that predatory, predatory instinct. He's not lost that desire to score goals. So I think the desire is still there. But I think, you know, and I, I've not seen as much of, of Spurs as, 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 as Matt has uh, this season. But I think it, it is a question from what I have seen of... of of you know, obviously under Nuno they were they were so turgid and 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 really there was that they weren't playing to to Kane's strengths if you like. I think under Conte obviously you know that has to change. You know there has to be and obviously he's a, he's a, he's a you know a, a great defensive coach if you like and, and and sets his teams up the right way. But I think they have to again you know get back to that way of, of playing with a bit of verve. I mean the irony is under Mourinho at the start of his season before last. You know him and uh, Kane and Son were banging goals in for fun, weren't they? And, and that mm. part of them was was fantastic. The you know the the sort of understanding between them was was electric, and they have to try and rediscover that somehow. Um, you know because th- that that is there. It's not been lost. Well, it has been lost of late, but it, it's there. It's not irretrievable. But I do think with Kane, yeah, I think his head is is is, is clearly yeah. still uh, there's clearly still a hangover from you know what was you know I mean as I say the the briefings that were coming out from the Kane camp, it was a done deal. You know Manchester City. He was going to Manchester City, and I, th- I think he felt. You know, but he could force his way out of, Man- of of Tottenham, and of course, you know, Daniel Levy had other ideas. Mm-hmm. So I think he he really is is sort of you know feeling yeah probably sorry for himself and 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 feeling a little bit let down. Um, but you're a professional. You've got I mean you know when, when he came out that statement in in August or late August saying you know I'm I'm staying at Spurs I'm fully committed. Well, you know, you've you've got to walk the walk. You know, your actions yeah. speak louder than words. And so far, we haven't seen that. Yeah, I mean, Chris, I mean the. They're no San Marino leads, um, but Kane, you know, might find it a little bit easier maybe against Leeds who are who are struggling at the moment. I mean, what do you make of their start of the season? Um, yeah, it's they don't seem to. I don't know whether teams have kind of figured them out or something, but they, the last year they seem to surprise a lot of teams, and teams kind of get a bit overwhelmed by them now. But I think now teams are happy to kind of let Leeds come at them all guns blazing and then just pick them apart defensively because they just they seem so much more they seem so open at the back and it's I I think if they don't kind of start finding a way to shore up the defence, they're gonna find themselves in a in a relegation battle and they don't seem like a team set up for a relegation battle, if that makes sense, because I don't think they're gonna to go to in Old Trafford or in Anfield, Old Trafford probably the wrong example considering their form, yeah. but in Anfield or the Etihad or, 
or or the Emirates and, and set up to go and right, let's grind out a point. They're not that team, so they could they can continue to lose a lot of big games and, and quite heavily. So I think something's got to change there with Bielsa and that he needs to find a way to, to tighten up that defence or they're going to find themselves in real danger of being dragged into that relegation battle. And I'm not sure if it is just that teams have figured them out or that kind of, I suppose, it's second season syndrome in, in the top tier that it's just not going as well as it was last year. They're just not getting those wins that they were getting last year. And, yeah, whether it's they've been figured out or whether they they've gone backwards defensively, I'm not sure. You know, it, it'll be um, it'll be Conte's first home Premier League game, won't, won't it? Um, um, obviously, he had that Europa Conference game. He had the game at Goodison, and he's already one of the most experienced managers, longest-serving managers in the Premier League. <laughs> already, we we seem to have a new manager starting every other day. Obviously, a couple, well, three would it be this their first Premier League games. So, is uh, 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 Smith and um, and the most high profile of all, of course, this weekend, Steven Gerrard back in the, back in the Premier League this time as a manager. Um, I mean, Chris, you've seen a lot of Steven and dealt with him in the past. I'll come to you first. Is this a good fit, Gerrard and Villa? Yeah, it's a, it's hard to know because I I haven't watched a lot of Villa. Um, five defeats in a row. I thought it was very harsh of them to sack Dean Smith. I know mm. that's another debate because he brought him up. He did sold his best player. They they had given him a lot of money. Let's not be around that. He, he they did invest a lot back in the squad. They didn't just sell Grealish and go get on with it. But it was going to take time to to re kind of find a new identity because everything worked around Grealish in the previous team. He was the talisman. It was everything. So I think he deserved more time. So. Uh, I think it's a great job for Gerard in that he's done a, a fantastic job at Rangers, like unbelievable to go up there to to take on Celtic and, and overtake them. And obviously they were helped by the fact Celtic went the other way since Rogers left. Um, but he had a backing up there financially as well. So he had the advantages, but he did the job. He got on the first title in how many years? He proved himself. And it was time now, though, to kind of come down to England and show show what he can do, I think. Um, he'll obviously have big ambitions to go on and get the Liverpool job in the future. He obviously won't say that it's a stepping stone at Aston Villa, and I don't think he'll see it as a stepping stone. I, I think he'll see it as he'll want to have success. Um, he'll want to push them up and try and make them into a European team. Um, and then if other opportunities come off the back of that, of course, he will, will look at it. But I don't think he'll see it as a stepping stone. I think it's a good fit. He's got... He's got a tough start, though. He's got, I think, obviously, Brighton this weekend, Crystal Palace. They're two winnable games, but coming straight into them, it's not going to be easy to get his views over. And then he goes into a run. I think it's Leicester, City and Liverpool um, back-to-back, if I'm right, um, mm. which is, which is, or it's City, Leicester and then Liverpool, which are three games that maybe Leicester, you'd fancy them to maybe get something out of, but the other two are going to be defeat. So these two first games against Brighton and Crystal Palace are going to be massive because they're going to need to get some points on the board. So it's a, a bit of a baptism of fire for him. But look, he's got to go. He's got to come somewhere. And Villa's a big club. Villa's a club that's got money. They've invested well. They've got a lot of good players still without Grealish. So I think he's been dealt a good hand in that way. But it's not going to be an easy job, and he's going to have to. If he does a good job with him, there's going to be no doubt about him as a as a top quality manager for the future. Donny, um, good appointment. Um, and, and just, if, if you could, briefly, which one do you think, let, let's say, Eddie Howe, Newcastle, Dean Smith, Norwich, Stephen Gerrard, Villa, which is the best appointment? Um, I would go for Stephen Gerrard, Villa. Um, because I think he's the one who can make a difference. Um, I think, but albeit, I think only temporarily because I think his ambitions and with that emotive thing with Liverpool one day, he is destined to go on to bigger things um, uh, if he does well. Uh, he, he's got the experience and perhaps the something about, about him as a player and the reputation to inspire players and perhaps make those Villa players perform a little bit better than, than they have been doing um, and, and show a positive increase. Um, whereas Dean Smith, who's gone to Norwich, can only do what Daniel Falk has done before, which is get relegated and then get them back up again. It's hard to see. I mean, that that 
is an achievement every time you get promoted from the championship. But that's just going to be level with expectation. It's a really tough job there to go on and improve unless you're going to persuade the owners to invest in a Premier League campaign properly. And as for Eddie Howe at Newcastle, um, I just fear he's the wrong sort of appointment. You know, they don't want a slow build. They, they want someone who's going to go in, um, be as loud and as noisy as the owners have been about their takeover, um, be part of that, keep them in the Premier League, you know, inspire the play, lift the whole of St. James's Park, which, which is a mighty edifice to, to get off the ground. Um, and, and I just don't see that being the right sort of fit for Newcastle at this point. Um, so, yeah, so of the three, I think, Gerard, yeah. it would be my pick to, to do best over the next sort of 18 months. Yeah, you know, it, it'll be fascinating to see how they all do this weekend. Um, and one thing you'll be saying of this weekend is there's bound to be um, refereeing controversies, controversies I just want to finish on, um, there was a game out, a World Cup qualifier, Ghana, South Africa, which Ghana won with a penalty. And the South African FA, I think, are, I'm not entirely sure where we're at, but I know they were planning a, an official protest. They called it daylight robbery from the um, Senegalese um, official, wasn't it? And that they were going to call for the game to be replayed, which, which got us thinking, what are the worst? And considering how many games we've seen between us, we've got plenty to choose from the worst refereeing decisions that you've seen. You know what? I, I, I'll start. Um, Are you going to nick my one? Huh? I'll tell you what. Donny, you go with yours then. Go on. I'll nick I'll your one then. So if you do one, I can I can have another. All right. I've, I've, um, aside from the decision of for Paul Alcock not to keep his feet when he was pushed by Paolo Di Canio, uh, we were both at the um, World Cup, weren't we? Uh, for Graham Pohl's finest hour. That was what I was going to do, go on, yes. Yeah, and we both witnessed the kissing of the ball beforehand yes. and had our doubts then. And, uh, yes, uh, um, so, so I mean, I mean that historically has got to be one of the worst refereeing decisions ever. So the yeah. fact that we were both there is just, particularly as, as representatives of England. Um, was. I mean, it's the pressure and with some very, very upset um, Australians. Very, very upset. It was brilliant because, you know, you know what, I mean, I mean I'll, we'll, we'll share this one today. Um, you tell it better, Andy, go for it. It was 2006 in Stuttgart. So obviously it was Croatia, Australia. And, and I remember at that game, we did, we had the the tunnel camp, basically, mm. that got fed into the press box, but didn't get now. You can see it, um, obviously, it goes to the wider broadcast world, but we, it was only us could see it on the monitor. And it's the first time they have the ball on the plinth. And, and Graham Paul comes out and he picks up the ball and he kisses the ball. Yeah, and and, and it was just, and, and it's the same Graham Paul who, at the Savoy once, he, he, he one of our functions he he came into the uh, bathroom to avoid limping so we said hey, you're, you're right Graham bit of a knock he says oh hammy and we said oh right be a while then out with that he says still the best ref on one leg and and limped out and it was like you know he, he was full of himself and after and then you're working at that game he kissed the ball and then I wasn't actually working live I was working for a Sunday paper and I think it was Charlie Wyatt from the Sun who'd say around to me and and, and he had noticed, and I said to him, oh, I think I said, I said, he's just given him a third yellow, but that's three yellow cards. <laughs> and Paul, if you remember, he reacted by saying, my dream is over, didn't he? He realised then, he, obviously yeah. his dream of being... Well, there was rest- a story, if you, sorry to interrupt, there was a story that morning that he was the, the top favourite to be referee in the World Cup final. Yeah. He had that morning, and he just had to basically get through that that match without any mishap. And he was a shoe in for the biggest game of his career. Yeah. We, we we shouldn't really revel in, in in his misfortune then, I guess. Um, but it was it was as you say. I mean, a, a memorable moments all those years ago. Uh, Chris, uh, it's it's not one I was at, but it's one that uh, sticks in my memory. Uh, and going back to being a bitter Irishman is the Thierry Henry handball into two thousand and nine oh. playoff. I mean. I still don't know how he see how none of the officials between the linesmen uh, or the ref seen it, and yeah, it will. Uh, it, it also for the the comedy that ensued afterwards, and uh, our little old nature kind of embarrassed ourselves, like begging to get into. It was the thirty third place in the World Cup we asked for, and then there was the little the FIFA little side payout to kind of keep us quiet that only came out recently and yeah for for big decisions to go wrong 
And it was also way overblown because at that point it wasn't we weren't going through. It was uh, there was there was no guarantee that we would have won it, mm. uh, won it in extra time or on penalties. So it was a huge thing. But I'll always uh, never kind of forget that because but again going back to being bitter and Irish looking at everybody else qualifying <laughs> for major tournaments uh, that one sticks for me this go well two the two I was at I, I will say the, the the biggest refereeing controversy I think and I wasn't there I think I was about 10 at the time 11 at the time but you'll remember it Donny and uh, Chris and the Matt I'm sure you remember it Harold Schumacher yes. at the uh, 1982 World Cup um you know, How old um, do you think I am? <laughs> you remember it, Donny. You, you remember it, the Russian linesman in the World Cup final. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were covering it, weren't you, Donny? No. Yeah, yeah, carry on. <laughs> no, but um, you remember it when he, when he took him out. I think, I, think, I think he was at home, wasn't he? He lost two teeth, three cracked ribs, uh, took him out, uh, knocked him unconscious, and the referee only gave a goal kick. So that, that, that's the biggest one I can recall, even though I wasn't at the game. But two I was at, um, a similar one, Ben Thatcher on... Uh, Pedro Mendes, the, the infamous elbow, yes. when I think Dermot Gallagher was referee and he only gave him a yellow card. I mean, it was an absolutely vicious assault and knocked him unconscious. Um, and I think Thatcher subsequently got an eight-match ban from the FA. And I think even City, prior to that FA ban, banned him for six matches uh, and, and fined him six weeks' wages. So, I mean, that was, I mean, how he only gave a yellow card for that, I do not know. And particularly when it was right under the nose of the assistant referee or linesman on that side. And the other one I remember, and I remember this. Um, because it effectively denied Manchester United a, a, a second treble in 2008. And they played Portsmouth at home in the um, quarterfinals of the FA Cup. And uh, Sylvain Distan brazenly took out Ronaldo as he tried to go past him. And uh, uh, Martin Atkinson, way play on it, was a clear penalty. He absolutely took him out. Ronaldo got the ball past him, had the, had the, the, the run on him. Uh, and I remember Ferguson and Carlos Quiros uh, branding Martin Atkinson a robber. So that robber gave us... <laughs> <laughs> of course, you know, that year United won the title at a canter. Well, not a canter, but they won it quite comfortably. Um, and, and they beat Chelsea in Moscow uh, to win the Champions League on penalties. And you had the feeling, I think, was that the year? Well, Portsmouth won it that year, didn't they? Who did they yes. play in the final? Yeah. Hmm. Was it, uh, who did they play in the final? I can't remember now. But um, yeah, you know, United always believed that, that Martin Atkinson cost them cost them the chance of a second treble. So I think that, that was a referee yeah. injustice. Um, and Andy, if I can just come back to Graham Pohl just to, for complete the circle, that, funny enough, wasn't the worst decision he, he ever made in his career. Just 12 months later, he was at the Champions League final, but his career had, had sky, skydived so much that he was all he was was in charge of the Vodafone sponsors media um, football competition. Um, and, and his main responsibility was to pick the player of the tournament that was, that was all he had to do, pretty much. And, and to say that he didn't make, here's the evidence that he made an even worse decision that day. <laughs> this, this, this cup coming in my direction uh, after that. So, yes. Yeah, so, that, that was for the player of the tournament, the Vodafone competition, a year later, as, as awarded by Graham Pohl. So, uh, so he made even worse decisions. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and that's a shock. I, I, I will just say also, just uh, next next time we, we, on, on our next podcast, maybe we'll discuss how all these mistakes that we're on about would have been, of course, not existed had VAR been around. We all complained. One one of the ones that one of the, another one that that, that that I was at that was one of the most remarkable was when Andre Mariner sent off Kieran Gibbs after Alex Oxley Chamberlain had. And sprawled full length to save an, uh, a shot from Eden Hazard, you know, and those sort of things aren't going to happen. Um, will no longer happen. We won't. We won't be looking back on great referee mistakes because we've got VAR. It's brilliant, isn't it? Um, I'm sure we'll all agree. But that's for another time. In the meantime, guys, enjoy the returns of Premier League. Thanks for the last hour or so, and um, and thanks everyone for watching. We'll see you all next week. <laughs> <laughs>